You're listening to Read Swell, a podcast for people who love to read and talk about books. I'm Meredith Bird, and thank you for joining me as we talk about The Handmaid's Tale by Margaret Atwood. Don't forget, you can contact me to let me know your thoughts by finding me on Twitter at read underscore swell, and you can use the hashtag handmaidrs to let me know your thoughts, or you can find me by email at readwriteswell at gmail.com. I know it's been a few weeks and I apologize for that. It's been very busy here at Read Swell and I haven't been able to sit down and do the podcast like I've wanted. So I appreciate your patience and hopefully soon I'll be able to focus more on the podcast. Let's get into our chapters 9 and 10 and then at the end we'll talk a little bit about the current Hulu television show of The Handmaid's Tale, of which there have been three episodes. So I'll let you know when we get there because there are possibly some spoilers. And we'll also have some reader mail. So let's just cover what we discussed last week very quickly, and then we'll get into chapters 9 and 10. So far we've met Ofrid, who is our protagonist, and we've also met Uvglen, one of the other handmaids. And we have met Serena Joy, the commander's wife. We've also met Nick, Rita, and Cora, who all work in the commander's house. At the end of last chapter, we finally meet the commander himself when he has apparently come into Ofred's room while she was not there. She sees him in the hallway. Ofred was quite horrified by this intrusion, and she doesn't really understand what's going on, why he was here. What also horrifies her, in addition to this breach of privacy, is the fact that she called it her room, which previously she'd refused to do because that means that she would be buying into this world and this existence, and she has mentally refused to allow herself to be part of this world. And that's where we pick up in the beginning of chapter 9. Ofred says, My room, then. There has to be some space, finally, as that I claim as mine, even in this time. So previously she didn't want to claim any ownership because it was a form of rebellion, as if she didn't want to give into this world by not being in it. And now she is claiming space, as if it's a form of rebellion to start claiming space, rather than the form of rebellion which is to opt out of this space. I think that's a really interesting idea from a feminist perspective. Uh, this desire to claim one's space, even in a society that is denying you of your rights. To claim that space is a radical act. And as part of that, we'll see her start to explore this space in minute detail to truly, really understand this space that is her own. It's a way to pass the time, but it's also a way for her to gather knowledge. And we'll see her gathering that knowledge and also uh, trying to figure out what to do with that knowledge once she has it. She says that somebody has lived in this room before her, uh, somebody like her, or at least she thinks so. She discovered it three days after she was moved here, and she decided to explore the room, not, quote, hastily, as one would explore a hotel room, expecting no surprise, opening and shutting the desk drawers, the cupboard drawers, unwrapping the tiny, individually wrapped bar of soap, she asks herself, will I ever be in a hotel room again? How I wasted them, those rooms, that freedom from being seen. Rented license. 
That is an interesting concept. Uh, license means uh, being given permission to have freedoms. And here, this is that hotel room that she's renting. So she's renting the freedom to do whatever she wants in that hotel space. And we learn that in the hotel space, the freedom she is being given is uh, freedom to do whatever she wants with Luke, the man that would later become her husband and the father of her daughter. She says that in the afternoons when Luke was still in flight from his wife, when I was still imaginary for him, before we were married and I solidified. This idea is kind of interesting, right? That imaginary person before one marries that person and then how they solidify into a reality once you spend day to day with them and, and the difference between that imaginary desired person and that real-life, sometimes frustrating person. I think that even though the story is a dystopian experience, it's also interesting how Margaret Atwood touches on women's experience in very ordinary circumstances like married life. Back then, she would always get to the hotel first and check in. It wasn't that many times, but it seems like a lot longer and a lot more important back then. She says that she was nervous, Quote, how was I supposed to know he loved me? It might be just an affair. Why did we ever say just? Though at the time, men and women tried each other on casually, like suits, rejecting whatever did not fit. That really seems to contrast with what Serena Joy says about her marriage, which is that they are married, her and the commander are married, until death do they part. And here we see Luke and Ofrid existing in a world where people could just try each other on and reject each other if it didn't quite fit. They weren't locked into these roles. Also interesting, why did we ever say just? We thought we had such problems then, she says a little bit later. How were we to know we were happy? Back then they were careless and quite literally careless. They had choices. They could choose how to live their life and who to be with, and now they don't. It's this moment of change in the world that she's remembering and remembering quite nostalgically, even though at the time it wasn't perhaps the happiest moment in her life. Anyway, uh, she was careless in those rooms back then, and she's not going to be careless in this current room. So she takes it very, very slowly, saving different parts of the room to be explored on different days. She divides the room in sections in her head and allows herself one section a day examining it minutely and carefully. When she gets to the mattress that she sleeps on, she folds back the blankets and the sheets a little bit at a time and examines even the stains on the mattress, which she describes are like dried flower petals, not recent, old love. There's no other kind of love in this room now. She says when she saw that, the evidence left by two people of love or something like it, desire at least, at least touch, between two people, now perhaps old or dead, I covered the bed again and lay down on it. She wants to feel Luke beside her, and she has these attacks of the past like faintness, a wave sweeping over her head. Sometimes she says it can hardly be born. What is to be done, I thought. There is nothing to be done. First of all, that's just such a tragic moment, right? This recalling of not just love, but something like love. And quite literally, just touch. She seems to be longing for not only the love that she has lost, 
but also someone to touch her and to acknowledge her existence. She says she wanted to feel Luke lying beside me, but there wasn't room. As if that was the reason why he wasn't laying there beside her. It's a really sad passage, not only because of this lost love, but also the attack of the memories that she's having and her desire to be touched and her desire to be near her husband again. I wonder why she covers it and lays back down. Does she cover it because she can't bear looking at it because she's so distraught that she wants to forget it ever existed? Or does she cover it and lay back down upon it because she somehow wants to be a part of it? I don't know exactly, so if you have some thoughts on how you interpreted that, please let me know. We're moving on now to the cupboard, and this is where we see the infamous quote. We're told that she saves the cupboard until the third day. She looks it over carefully, examining the brass hooks that haven't been removed, even though they could be a way for someone to escape. And then on the floor, in the darkest corner, she sees tiny writing, scratched with a pen or maybe just a fingernail. And it says... Nolite te batardes carborundum. She says, I didn't know what it meant, or even what language it was in. I thought it might be Latin, but I didn't know any Latin. Still, it was a message, and it was in writing, forbidden by that very fact, and it hadn't yet been discovered, except by me, for whom it was intended. It was intended for whomever came next. She says, It pleases me to ponder this message, it pleases me to think I'm communing with her, this unknown woman. For she is unknown, or if known, she has never been mentioned to me. It pleases me to know that her taboo message made it through to at least one other person, washed itself up on the walls of my cupboard, was opened and read by me. Sometimes I repeat the words to myself. They give me a small joy. When I imagine the woman who wrote them, I think of her as about my age, maybe a little younger. I turn her into Moira, Moira she was when she was in college, in the room next to mine, quirky, jaunty, athletic, with a bicycle once, and a knapsack for hiking. Freckles, I think, irreverent, resourceful. This unknown woman makes me think of a lot of things. First of all, makes me wonder, where did this quote come from? Why does she know it? Why does she write it in Latin? in a place that can't be seen. And it also makes me wonder, just like Alfred wonders, about the woman herself. And it makes me think about all the unknown women that have gone throughout history. The women who have been educated and contributed a small, tiny little detail to history, and yet will never know their names. And I also think about how she compares this woman to Moira. Because I think you're right, I think once, especially once we know what the quote means, we do see how this person is uh, quirky, jaunty, irreverent, and resourceful. It's also interesting that she says that Moira had a bicycle once. Bicycles were an important factor in the suffragette movement of the late 19th and early 20th centuries. Bicycles were, for the first time, uh, giving women an ability to travel, in some way, on their own. It was a cheap, easily procured way to get around. You didn't need a horse or a carriage. You didn't need to know how to drive a carriage. 
and yet you could still travel pretty easily and pretty far on bicycles. And so they are an important, perhaps often overlooked aspect of women's suffragist movements and feminist movements. And so that's what I wonder. Did she include the detail about the bicycle because it's a nod to all those women who've gone before, those early feminist women? Ofred asks Rita about the woman who was before her, and Rita is suspicious, and Rita asks if she used to know the woman. Uh, Ofred lies and says that she knew her before in the Red Center, and Rita accepts this because she knows there must be an underground way of communication, just like the Marthas have. And she tells Ofred that she didn't work out, but when Ofred presses for more, Rita clamps her lips together. Ofred says, I'm like a child here. There are some things I must not be told. What you don't know won't hurt you, was all she would say. That's the end of chapter 9, and that brings us straight into chapter 10. We're still very much in Ofred's thoughts. We don't know how much time has passed, or if this is just an overview of how she spends her time in general. But we're told that sometimes she sings to herself in her head. One of the songs that she sings is Amazing Grace, but she's not sure if the words are right, because this is not one of the songs that are sung in public anymore. Especially the ones that use the word like free. They are considered too dangerous. They belong to outlawed sex. Amazing Grace was written by a man who was a slave ship captain, and he converted to Christianity and repented of his past and wrote the song Amazing Grace. I believe he might have been a Baptist. I'm not certain about that part, but if so, then that tells us a little bit more about one of the outlawed sects that is forbidden in Gilead. We learned earlier that there was a battle between the troops of Gilead and some Baptists that were in some Appalachian hills. So we know already that the Baptists are not part of Gilead. Another one of the songs that she sings is what sounds like an Elvis Presley song, Heartbreak Hotel, although the words are not exactly correct, which could be just because she has forgotten some of the lyrics. She tells us that this song, too, is outlawed, and she knows it from an old cassette tape of her mother's. She had a scratchy and untrustworthy machine that could still play such things. So this tells us a little bit more about the world building. The song lyrics that she sings are, I feel so lonely, baby. I feel so lonely, baby. I feel so lonely I could die. Which are not the exact words of Heartbreak Hotel, but they are very similar. But this detail about the tape and the scratchy, untrustworthy machine tells us a little bit more about this world. Obviously, it's the near future. So it's a time when tapes are not common, and it would be hard to be able to play them, and yet they would still have existed. It makes me wonder why this tape existed, why her mother had this on tape, and why not upgrade it. Is this one of the songs that was slowly being forbidden? Even back when Ofred was a young woman or a young girl and her mother would play it with her friends when they had been having drinks? Is that the reason why it was a tape and not something like a disc? We learn later Serena Joy has a copy of one of her former discs that she plays very softly. And she plays it with the volume alone so she won't be caught listening as she sits there knitting, remembering her own former and now amputated glory.
We have the word hallelujah. It makes me wonder, is that a song that she was singing? Or is this just a praise word that Ofrid uses? Which is pretty ironic, right? Uh, that word hallelujah in relation to the amputated glory that was Serena Joy singing before and her fame before. We also know that there's some irony here too because... Serena Joy actively worked for her own amputated glory, and yet now she's sitting here longing for those bygone days that she apparently wanted to abolish. Ofred says, There isn't much music in this house, except when we hear it on the TV. And she doesn't sing like this often. It makes her throat hurt. Although we also know she sings in her head. So I wonder why her throat hurts. Is it because of emotion? Or does she sing when she's alone in her room? We're not told exactly. We move on, and we learn it's warm for this time of year. Uh, it's a little bit warmer now, and Ofred says that soon they'll be allowed to wear their summer dresses, which are at least made of cotton, even though they are long and cover them completely. Aunt Lydia says that at least they don't have to worry about sunburn, as if this is supposed to be a benefit and a payoff for the clothes they're now required to wear. We also learn that Aunt Lydia used to view women sunning themselves as a spectacle. And she says, no wonder these things used to happen. Because these women would go out and make a spectacle of themselves, oiling themselves like roast meat on a spit, and bare backs and shoulders on the street, in public, and legs, not even stockings on them. No wonder those things used to happen. Things. The word she used when, whatever it stood for, was too distasteful or filthy or horrible to pass her lips. A successful life for her was one that avoided things, excluded things. Such things do not happen to nice women. Whew, I have some thoughts about this. First of all, it reminds me again of what Aunt Lydia said about freedom. Previously, previously women were given the freedom to, and now they're given the freedom from. And apparently one of those freedoms from is... Uh, sunburns, and oiling themselves and making themselves spectacles, but also things that would happen to them. They're, they're given the freedom from such things. You know, this is a tired argument. We've been hearing this for a long time, that things happen to women because of the way that they present themselves, because of the skin they show, or the bathing suits they wear, because of the bathing suits they wear, or any number of things that don't happen to nice women, which implies that nice women cover themselves up. And therefore, if you are not covered, then you're not a nice woman, and things will happen to you that are distasteful and filthy. And then we're told that it wasn't good for the complexion either, but we weren't supposed to care about our complexions anymore. She'd forgotten that. So Aunt Lydia is always, in this book, a combination of the tired arguments that women are presented with about what it means to be a good woman or a nice woman and how we are supposed to both be modest and also pretty. And here, Aunt Lydia is making that argument and also forgetting that apparently, according to the rules of Gilead, women aren't supposed to care about their looks anymore. So she's making that argument, oh, well, 
if you cover up, bad things won't happen to you. And also you'll be pretty. I think calling her Aunt Lydia is a really a, a great reminder of her role in this story. Because she is the reminder of internalized misogyny. That old woman who is always telling younger women how to behave in order to avoid bad things happening. And she always does it in a way that is intended to make the younger women feel sympathy or feel loved and feel cared for by Aunt Lydia. And she says in this passage, I'm doing my best. I'm trying to give you the best chance you can have. And she says in this passage that she's doing the best that she can. She's trying to give the best them the best chance they can have. And she also says, don't think it's easy for me either. I'm, om I'm almost tempted to wonder if Aunt Lydia is just doing what she thinks is right for these women in order to protect them. And yet, the way that we've seen her throughout the story, I think that she believes fully in the mission of Gilead, and she thinks this is what's best for these women. And don't think it's easy for me either doesn't imply don't think it's easy for me to deal with these people either, and I'm just doing the best I can do and wanting you to do the best you can do so we can all get out of here alive. I don't think she's trying to say, I'm doing the best I can, and it's not easy for me either to deal with these people. I think tr here she's trying to play to their sympathy and trying to get them onto her side, and yet she is going to turn on them at any moment in order to make them feel the internalized misogyny that she herself is a part of. Um, Aunt Lydia is buying into what she is being told about women's behavior and women's roles in societies and the best way to combat the evil that is women. Because earlier in the story, she tells the women that they must be the ones responsible for protecting, A, their virtues, but B, also the men from the sins that these men want to commit because all flesh is weak. And so Aunt Lydia is giving these different arguments that all contradict each other in trying to get these women to be on her side, but also trying to break them down. This memory of Aunt Lydia, this brings up another memory of Moira back in college when Moira comes into Ofrid's dorm room and says that she's giving an underwear party. You know, like Tupperware, only with underwear. Tart stuff, lakes, crotches, snap garters, bras that push your, your tits up. And Ofred says that you know, this is a crazy idea, but Moira says that she's got connections and she's working her way through college. It's big in the suburbs. Once they start getting age spots, they figure they've got to beat the competition. The porno marts and what have you. Ofred says, but here? Who would come to such a party? In college, they're not old, they're not married women to seduce their husbands to keep them interested. And Moira says, you're never too young to learn. And Ofred, back in our present day, says, is that how we lived then? But we lived as usual. 
Everyone does, most of the time. Whatever is going on is as usual. Even this is as usual now. We lived as usual, by ignoring. Ignoring isn't the same as ignorance. You have to work at it. Nothing changes instantly. In a gradually heating bathtub, you'd be boiled to death before you knew it. There were stories in the newspapers, of course. Of course. Of corpses in ditches or in the woods, bludgeoned to death or mutilated. Interfered with, as they used to say. But they are about other women. And the men who did such things were other men. None of them were the men we knew. The newspaper stories were like dreams to us. Bad dreams dreamt by others. How awful, we would say. And they were. But they were awful without being believable. They were too melodramatic. They had a dimension that was not the dimension of our lives. We were the people who were not in the papers. We lived in the blank white spaces at the edge of print. It gave us more freedom. This is an interesting quote. We lived as usual by ignoring. Ignoring isn't the same as ignorance. You have to work at it. I think that this is an important quote for us in our current political situation. But I think it's also really relevant to that change in a society that we see, right? Ignorance and ignoring are different. You have to put blinders on in order to continue a normal life when faced with extraordinary, unusual circumstances. That's different than completely not knowing what's going on. It's different to say, for instance, I know exactly what's going on, and yet I'm not going to do anything about it. To be able to say that requires a lot of privilege, right? You have to be one of the people who is not being targeted by these new circumstances in order to ignore it. You can live in those blank white spaces, which perhaps she doesn't mean those words to have the same resonance that I imbue them with. And yet, they seem to really kind of signify what she's talking about. If you are able to live in a blank white space, it's because you have the privilege that is usually afforded by a white skin color. And yet we see that happening a lot right now in our current situation, so these words seem to have extra significance to me. And, you know, this is one of those quotes that it just, it pierces you. Especially if you are, like me, a white woman who has an education and a middle-class background. I could live as usual by ignoring. And I admit that all too often I have. I've been able to. And yet, you have to be one of those people who is not living in the gaps between the stories, but is acknowledging the reality of those stories. She mentions that detail, and she mentions how the water slowly gets hotter, and all of a sudden you're in it, you're in the middle of it. And we come back to her being in the middle of it. From below her room in the driveway comes the sound of a car being started. This detail right here, too, it also seems to relate back to that life of privilege. She says, it's quiet in this area. There isn't a lot of traffic. 
You can hear things like that very clearly. Car motors, lawn mowers, the clipping of a hedge, the slam of a door. You could hear a shout clearly, or a shot, if such noises were ever made here. Again, there's that moment of privilege, and she's acknowledging that perhaps before she ignored it, and here in this bubble she exists in, it's also being ignored. You could hear a shout or a shot if they were ever made here. And yet she lives in this bubble of this neighborhood and of Gilead. She goes over to the window and sits on the window seat, and there's a little cushion that has faith embroidered on it. She spends a lot of time looking at this print, faith. And it's not so much, I think, because of the message here, although I think that it is significant. Have faith. Hopefully someday you will be back in one of those hotel rooms that she was talking about in Chapter 9. Or hopefully you will get out of this circumstance. Have faith. Survive. Don't let the bastards get you down. And yet, it's also because it's a word. It's the only word she's able to access in all of her surroundings. She says, if I were caught doing it, would it count? I didn't put the cushion here myself. Can I be punished for the thoughts that I'm having based on this word because I'm a woman and I'm not allowed to read? That makes me think of another dystopian novel, 1984, and the thought crime in that book, where you could be punished for simply having the thought. Ofrid leans forward and she sees Nick opening the door of the car and the commander coming out. She glimpses him only for a minute, walking to the car. He doesn't have his hat on. His hair is gray. Silver, you might call it, if you were being kind. I don't feel like being kind. The one before was bald, so I suppose it's an improvement, she says. And then she has this memory of her and Moira with paper bags filled with water, water bombs, they were called, leaning out my dorm window, dropping them on the heads of the boys below. It was Moira's idea. What were they trying to do? Climb a, a ladder for something? For our underwear. That dormitory had once been coeducational, she says. There were still urinals in one of the washrooms on our floor. But by the time I got there, they'd put things back the way they were. I think this detail is significant because it's another example of the water slowly getting hotter around her. At one point in this society, they had decided that co-educational living for college students was an acceptable idea. And then that had gone back. So we have that progress forward, and then we have the retreat, which we see in other areas of the book as well. The retreating back to the point that they are at now in Gilead, where women aren't allowed to even read. And I think that phrasing too, they put things back the way they were, is another example of this fundamentalist society advocating for traditional values, much like Serena Joy advocates for a woman's place in the home. And it's just a reminder to us in our current situation of how we must still fight for every allowance because otherwise we're living as usual by ignoring and working at it. And that's the way that these changes creep in. If we don't fight for every right, then 
we will lose them because people will come in and slowly take them back to the way they were. It's again that water temperature rising slow, so slowly you don't notice it. Ofrid returns to the present day and she says about the commander, I ought to feel hatred for this man. I know I ought to feel it. It isn't what I do feel. What I feel is more complicated than that. I don't know what to call it. It isn't love. That's a really interesting way to finish this chapter because it seems to me to embody sort of all of these ideas about the patriarchy that we do have. She knows she ought to hate this man because he represents the things that have been taken away from her. And he represents the things that are keeping her in this circumstance. He represents the patriarchy. He is a high-ranking commander in Gilead. Therefore, he was probably part of what causes her to be a handmaid. And she says she knows she ought to feel hatred for him. And yet, it's more complicated than that which I think is very true for many of us women who exist in a patriarchal society and love men and enjoy men in a patriarchal society. Because on the one hand, we are told we ought to feel hatred for that. And then on the other hand, we can't bring ourselves to hate the actual people who sometimes represent that patriarchal society, whether it's a father, a husband, a friend, a brother. It's more complicated than just that. And that's one of the reasons why women's rights advocacy and the abolition of the patriarchy is so complicated, because it's pitting two genders against each other, while at the same time those genders need each other. And so it becomes intertwined and complex. It's hard to separate the privilege of patriarchy from the men in our lives who benefit from it, but perhaps don't treat us as a villain might. Obviously the commander has a lot more skin in this game than perhaps Luke, who Ofred acknowledges also benefits from the system and yet seems sympathetic towards her. And so you might wonder, why would she not hate this man? Why would she even bring that word love into it? She says it isn't love, but that seems like a far stretch from hatred, which she doesn't want to acknowledge and doesn't feel, but also love, which she doesn't want to acknowledge and she doesn't feel. I wonder where the middle ground is and why she doesn't mention that. Uh, this is the end of chapter 10, so we're going to stop here. I do have some listener mail, and I'm very excited to get to read it. It's my first listener mail. This comes from Kelly, who writes the following. I enjoyed your first podcast so much. I loved how you spoke of the gym and all the memories that would be there. As someone who grew up without that, it helped me a lot. I grew up very religious and went to a tiny school where we didn't really have a gym, and so I loved hearing about it, especially how bodies and flesh would have been visible there, and now there are bodies there again, but they are prescribed and controlled. I loved the idea in the first chapter about palimpsests and the gym being one of those. The idea that part of the former life occasionally floats upwards and becomes visible. The indications of the United States on the blankets, for example. The faint smells of the gym. The imagery that these linger underneath the current 
regime of Gilead like words from another document that live underneath a new one is so vivid. And just to define that word, because it's a great word, palimpsest is a manuscript or piece of writing material on which the original writing has been effaced to make room for later writing, but of which traces remain. So it's something reused or altered, but still bearing visible traces of its earlier form. And I completely agree, Kelly. This book is full of palimpsests that pop up and remind us, like ghosts appearing again. Kelly goes on to say, Your discussion about the epigraphs was of, of particular interest to me. The way a story gets framed is so crucial, isn't it? It's not like you look at the frame itself, but the frame tells you where to look. And she says, I agree the first one is rather easy, and the second one as well. Although, I do believe that in addition to being a dystopian science fiction story, Atwood is also pinning a satire in much the same way Swift was. Take the present's evils and exaggerate them to an extreme, then present this tale as a warning and a call to action. I completely agree with you t too, Kelly. I was also researching this idea of satire and a formal satire, and I think we'll, we'll talk about that a little bit later. I want to get my thoughts together a little bit more, but you're absolutely right. This is a satire in a couple of different ways. The third epigraph is a puzzler, Kelly says. I've turned it around in my head from time to time. I don't really have a definitive answer, but I do have three different ways of looking at it. This is one of the main reasons I want to talk about Kelly's letters, because she has such great thoughts about the three ways that this quote could be interpreted. And just as a reminder, that quote is, In the desert there is no sign that says, Thou shalt not eat stones. And it's a Sufi proverb, and I didn't really have a great handle on it. I had some random ideas, but Kelly expresses them really well and kind of sums up what I was thinking about in ways that I wasn't quite able to do. She says, A desert is an environment barren of what humans need to sustain life. The stones cannot sustain life, but you do not blame a person for trying. Since the environment is so hostile, we don't make rules about how a person survives such a place. I completely agree. We can't make rules for how Ofrid survives in this place because it is so hostile to life. I think it's a great interpretation of this quote. Uh, let's not blame Ofrid for the things that she does to survive. The second way I often think about it is maybe the more obvious tack of you shouldn't have to post signs or make laws regarding things which are blatantly obvious. Just as people shouldn't have to be told not to eat stones, they shouldn't have to make laws about women being people. Also very true. The third way Kelly looks at it is maybe it is a combination of these ideas. That when you find yourself somewhere as harsh as the desert, there is no one to tell you not to eat stones. And no one blames you for using every resource you possibly can to ensure such a harsh reality. I think that that's a great way to think of this story. Both of those those ways and the third combining them are great interpretations of this. A, don't blame Ofrid for how she survives because she's surviving and a desert is a hostile place. And hey, if, <laughs> if eating stones helps you survive, then eat those stones. And the third, we shouldn't have to be told not to eat stones, just like we shouldn't have to be told, hey, women are people too. And Kelly has some other comments about the end of the book, which has some more framing devices, and you're absolutely right, I will get to those when we finish the book, because it is an interesting way to contextualize the story. So, thank you very much, Kelly, for your email. It was really nice to hear, and thank you so much for your support on Twitter. 
Once again, if you want to follow me on Twitter, you can find me at read underscore swell. And you can also email me at readwriteswell at gmail.com. I would love to hear your thoughts, so please send them my way. If you like the podcast, you can always help us out by posting some reviews on iTunes because that really helps us get more people listening and raises our, raises our profile on the iTunes algorithm. You can also tell your friends and family and get them listening too. I did also want to talk about the Hulu TV show very briefly. So far, there's three episodes in. So if you haven't seen it yet, or if you haven't seen all three, now would be a great time to stop listening because there might be some spoilers. All right, so first of all, now that everyone is gone who was listening uh, but not hadn't seen the three episodes, I don't want to say I'm enjoying this show. That seems like the wrong word to say. Uh, the first two episodes, I was kind of immersed in the world building and the the way that this story comes alive. I was interested to see the way they had cast it and the way that they had... Uh, visually represented this world of Gilead. It's really interesting because it seems almost like a regular suburban uh, city center area, but with all of these Puritan-looking people walking around in it. So you have Prius cars driving on the streets, uh, you have machine guns, you have buildings that are modern architecture, and then you have these women in gowns and big white hats like you might have seen Nathaniel Hawthorne's The Scarlet Letter. So it was a very striking visual representation. And the casting was very fascinating. I loved the diversity in the story that we have so far. Uh, and I I love the way that the story flashes back and forth. Um, I also really liked the change that Ofrid is a little bit more empowered in this version. In the book, she is much more passive for most of the story, and in the past, too. She doesn't go to the protests. She uh, works at a job that she seems to like okay, but she doesn't seem that invested in it. And yet in the TV show, she goes to the protests with Moira, um, and she works as a book editor. So the idea that she's no longer allowed to read is... So far, not really mentioned in the TV show, and yet we know that she had a job that she seemed passionate about, and it was a job that required her dedication to the word. So I would imagine that the loss of uh, being able to read would hit her even harder, and maybe we'll see some examples of that coming up. Some other things that I thought were fascinating was uh, the way that they started to delve into other people's backstories. Uh, for instance, Ofglen, and Alexis Bledel is killing it as Ofglen. Uh, the third episode was incredibly hard for me to watch, and it was incredibly powerful too. So if you haven't seen that yet, I highly recommend going slow. The first two episodes, I was, I was in, I was interested. The third one, it just reaches in and grabs you, and it 
it horrifies and yet it also feels much too relevant. It was the first television show I've ever seen that made me feel a visceral reaction like it was going on currently. Uh, you know, I've, I've cried in TV shows before. I've felt connections to those TV shows before. This is the first one that has made me scared in a way that has nothing to do with the safety of the characters and everything to do with my own safety. So it's, it's a hard show to watch. It's hard to see all those things come to life in a world that looks very similar to my own. And yet, just like in this week's chapters, we can't live in those blank white spaces. We can't live by ignoring them. We can't look away. So I'm going to leave it there. And please let me know your thoughts of the TV show or the book by contacting me on Twitter or by email. And don't forget, don't look away. Next week, we'll be looking at chapters 11 and 12. I hope to see you then. Thanks. Bye.